MHV Voice, connecting people and sharing ideas. Hi, I'm Mel Brooks and welcome to the first MHV podcast. Farmers and growers are always looking at ways to improve their environmental footprint and efficiencies while growing food and fibre. And this podcast is intended to connect people, share ideas and share ideas on ways we can improve environmental outcomes more broadly. So for our first topic, um, unfortunately, dead stock is a natural part of livestock farming. Obviously, we want to minimise this, but when it occurs, it's important that we've got sustainable ways to dispose of our dead stock, both financially and environmentally sustainable. Animal composting, when it's done properly, does achieve this. And in this episode, we're going to explore how composting works, um, considerations from compliance and operations perspectives, and get first-hand experience of what works. So we're not the experts, but we're really fortunate to be joined by Mary Keener, who is a livestock environmental management specialist at the Carrington Research Centre at the North Dakota State University. And when you Google composting, manure or anything that's associated with animal composting, Mary's name comes up time and time again. So Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. That's all right. Um, should we start with you telling us a little bit about you and um, and whereabouts you're based? So um, I grew up on a diversified cow-calf operation. So we raised uh, mama cows and calves and we raised crops to feed them. Um, and then I went to college at North Dakota State uh, for my bachelor's in animal science. And I actually went to UW-Madison, so University of um, Wisconsin-Madison, for my master's in the same thing, almost done with grad school. And everyone's like, what are you going to do with your life? And I was like, well, I am not going to shovel manure. (laughs) And so now I'm the livestock environmental management specialist uh, for North Dakota State University. And indeed, that is um, manure and mortality. That's what I do. (laughs) And I've been doing it for 10 years now. um, And I really like it. It's fun. So I'm based in Carrington, uh, which is pretty much the center of North Dakota. And so, so animal composting is the thing we're really keen to talk about today. Uh, here in New Zealand, um, in the past, there's been animal pickups. Um, so, you know, in any livestock operation, there's going to be dead stock. And so the way that was managed in the past was with pickups of animals, um, but also off pits, so burying in the ground. The challenge, as you'll be more than aware of, is that when you put animals in the ground, we do have risk of contamination into the groundwater. And, um, and that's something that we're trying to avoid. So we're just exploring different options of what that might look like. Um, and animal composting is one of those things. So are you able to tell us a little bit about what the animal composting means to you? So for me, when we're mortality composting, I would just think of it as, uh, we call it a natural process. Um, and I think of it as above ground burial. And so basically we're using the, the resources that we have on our farms to bury that animal above ground but we're doing it in a way that facilitates microbial breakdown. So we need a little bit of heat. Uh, so a thermophilic decomposition is what it is. So we need some heat loving uh, microorganisms that are going to help break that carcass down really fast. And so how do you get the heat? So the heat's going to come from a couple different things. Um, the, the carbon to nitrogen that we have in our mortality piles. And so it's a little different than if we're going to backyard compost or if we're composting manure where we, we can really calculate the carbon to nitrogen ratio in those. Um, in a mortality, we have a big clump of carbon, a big hunk of nitrogen with the carcass, and then more carbon on top. And so it's a little harder to calculate that um, because we're not mixing it together like we normally would in, a, in another compost row. 
Um, but we do want to take into consideration what carbon and nitrogen sources we have going into that pile. So what kind of mortality did we have, big, small, and then what kind of carbon sources we have that'll help with heat. Um, moisture is a big factor. And then, of course, the carbon that's going on top of our row, so our top cover, is going to help keep the moisture in, but also keep the heat in and keep some of our predators out. So the heat comes from the microbes that are in there, breaking the carcass down. Uh, when the microbes are eating, they're happy and they're letting off a lot of heat. Um, and then when they cool down or when they stop and our pile starts to cool down, that's when we know we have to help it. We have to add something to it to get it going again. So what are the sorts of signs that you'll see when you know that your pile's starting to cool down or not work quite as it's supposed to? So you can go kind of by a couple of things, um, temp and time. And so time, you just kind of know after you've done a few of these, like we, we give our producers, um, our livestock producers, we call it a base recipe. So here's your base recipe to go and compost your mortality. And so our base recipe is two feet of carbon source on the bottom. We put our carcass on top. We do eight inches of bulking material. And that is manure or compost or spoiled silage, um, fermented feed, something that went bad. We put that on top and then we do another two feet of carbon on top of that. So that's our base um, recipe that we give folks. And so if they have followed that base recipe and things were heating up and we know it was going well and it's been about three months, then we're going to say, okay, it's probably time to go ahead and, and aerate that pile. We need to open it up, give it a little oxygen, and then see what happens. Right, so the, the piles aren't covered though? The piles are covered uh, with... Straw or, or something, not so, so no, not, not an impervious surface on the top, it's straw or right. something like that. Yes, yes, yep. And some people do in, in the United States, there are some people, it depends on what state you're in because our regulations are different everywhere you go. And so each state has their own regulations as far as if you have to compost inside or outside, if it has to be covered or not covered. And so there are some states that actually do compost their mortalities inside. Um, here though, we do not. Um, leachate or, or or going through that pile is something that kind of comes to mind and it's like how do we protect ourselves from that so you know what would be your um, advice around management of leachate from heavy rain events yeah and, and that's so important um especially especially with surface waters right so we groundwater is one thing but surface water is something else that we're really concerned about as well and so um leachate the first thing i talk to producers about is and it, it's not fancy it's just site selection yeah where okay. are we going to put that um and so we want some kind of clay or clay loamy soil we want to keep it off of a sandy soil uh, so those are just a couple things to keep in mind if you have it on some kind of clay type soil, we know that there's going to be maybe a little leachate coming out of that um, carcass compost, but it's going to be very little. And if you have proper soil, it's going to stay there. Also, um, what kind of buffer area do you have around that? You know, do you have like a grass buffer going around your compost area? Are you um, 10 feet or 100 feet from your surface water? Um, where are we at relative to groundwater? So yeah, in New Zealand, you'd you'd want to be at least a hundred meters from, yes. from surface water. Sorry, I'm gonna yeah. go. I'm gonna go into metric, not imperial. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. It's very similar here in that we have to be so many feet from surface water, so many um, inches above groundwater, so many feet from private wells, and so so that is the the initial where the heck are we putting it to consider leachate? But now, if you actually have leachate that's coming out. 
Um, something else is, so on the bottom of our compost, we're using more of a coarse carbon. So we're using like wood chips or um, whole straw. So some people will put chopped straw on the top where it's right. been ground. We'll use whole straw on the bottom. We want something that's going to create airflow. So it kind of sets on top of each other where the air can come up and create a chimney effect. So however, heavy, like a heavy um, bark chip or something would, would be a yes. thing for Mary? Okay. Yes. Um, and, and yep. And so we do that on the bottom, but then if people are very concerned about leachate, if you're in an area where you're concerned, or, you know, you're putting carcasses in that, that might be an issue. What we can do is we'll put about six inches of sawdust on top of that carbon source. So that sawdust just adds a, a, a little bit of a buffer. It'll soak up anything that's coming out. But something else to keep in mind is there have been studies done um, not in North Dakota, just in general in the U.S. on mortality compost that shows the amount of leachate coming out of these carcasses is so small. We're, we're going to have more of an issue with runoff from heavy rains versus the actual leaching of anything that's coming out of that compost. Right. And so um, the, the leaching then that's going to happen from any kind of heavy rains, we're going to manage that with our buffer areas and our proper soil site selection. Okay, yeah, that 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 makes sense. And so, um, as far as the uses for compost, what what are some of the uses that um, your farmers are, are using it for? So uh, we don't use it a lot, and we don't use it a lot because we just reuse it. So right. when the when the compost, and uh, so if we have an animal, um, a lot of times, unless there's a disaster or some kind of catastrophe, we are composting one animal at a time. Yeah. And so I say compost rows um, because we we typically put them in a row. So it looks nice. Right. And so it's out there and, and there's not just little spots all over the landscape. We'll put it in one row, but it really is individual piles. Um, and so what happens is when that pile gets done, we, we have something that's in there. It's been in for three months. Um, so the bigger the carcass, the longer the time. Right. And so when I'm saying uh, three months for our first turn, I'm talking about um, for us, it would be like a, a feeder or a finishing calf. Um, so they would be around 900 pounds um, to 1,200 pounds. Maybe a cow um, that has passed away or an old bull. Um, so bigger. And, and their bones are a little more calcified. So they're going to need a little more time. So we have three months. We open it up and we aerate it. At that point, you can either open it. So you're going to see um, a lot of broke down flesh. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the muscle substance will still be there, but it's going to be very broke down right. um, in, in a, a cooked um, kind of fashion. And so what happens when we open that up is we can put a new mortality in there if we want to. So that's just reusing. So it's already hot. Um, so we have a hot pile with very active organisms and we can just put something else in there. Or if we've opened it up, we have nothing new to put in. We close it. We recover it with carbon. We wait three more months. Now we're really broke down. We have no carcass left. We have no flesh left. We have some bones. We right. have femur bones. We have shoulder bones and some jaws. Um, and at that point, we want the bones to keep composting. And so again, we'll just open it up and put something new in. The hotter we can get those bones, the more brittle right. we can make them, the faster they'll break down. Okay. So when you say, um, what are your uses? We really just reuse it over and over and over. Can you use it as fertilizer? Yes. Um, right. So what we would do in that instance is we just sort out the bones. So any large bones that haven't um, decayed, 
or broken down. We actually just sort those out and you can do a couple things um, for us. And it depends on your regulations. We either um, put them back in the compost rows and just keep cooking them. Yeah. Or we will um, put them in the dumpster and they go to a landfill uh, because they're clean bones. And so they can go to our landfills um, or we bury them. Right. Okay. And so um, that's another use. And then we'll just spread the compost on our fields for crops. So when you're reusing the compost, do you need to um, reactivate it? Do you need to add more carbon source at any stage? So it's really going to depend on how done that was, um, how maybe dead it was when you reused it. And so right. if it's if it's really broke down, you haven't been back to your mortality row for nine months. Nothing's been going on. You haven't had a reason to go back there. Um, it looks pretty dry. When you open that back up and you put the new carcass in, I would put new bulking material on top of that. And again, oftentimes our bulking material has some moisture to it because it's a it's a fermented feed or it's um, some kind of uh, manure that, that still has some water content in it. And so um, if you can get a little bit of moisture in there and, and then put that carbon back on top um, and then cook. So I would say you're, you're kind of reactivating it um, in a sense, but also it's more so dormant than dead. It's just kind of waiting for you to feed it again. Waiting for the, for the next. Uh, right. Hungry. It's one way, one way of looking at it. And yeah. Have, do you have issues with smell? Um, I say no. Um, people say, yeah, doesn't your, your mortality compost grow stink? And here's what I tell them. When I open it up, if I'm doing something down there, if we're doing pile maintenance, if I'm doing a tour, a lot of people will come tour our rows just to see what it looks like when it's breaking down. When you open it, that's a decaying carcass. Um, and so there's going to be some smell that comes out of there. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, people don't know that we have mortality rows that they're standing right next to them until we tell them that. That's really interesting. And, yeah. and so the, the, if there is a smell, is that a sign that something's wrong? I would say yes. Um, and so the times you're going to get a smell, if you've had a lot of leachate. Um, and so more so again, it's going to be leachate coming from off the pile instead of inside the pile. So we have leachate coming from, we've had a lot of rain and now we have a lot of pooling at the bottom. Sometimes that pooling will mix with that fermented um, bulking source that we have. Yeah. Sometimes that actually smells worse than the carcass that's a decaying inside. So now we have a stinky fermented um, pool of water at the bottom. Um, and so some things you can do then, we add more carbon. We, right. we always want it. That's almost always, it's, it's an easy answer, right? We can say, did you add more carbon? Um And so that would be something if you do smell something, if you're like, oh, I kind of smell that that carcass, the dead animal carcass has a a certain smell to it when it's out in the open. Mm -hmm. And so if you say, I really smell that, um, the first thing you can do is go see, is there something that um, as the pile breaks down, the carcass is going to um, shift, right? So the pile shifts as the carcass breaks down. And so what's going to happen is sometimes something will be sticking out because of how um, it has shifted. So at that point, if you're smelling something, the first thing to do is just do a quick monitor. Just walk around it and inspect and say, yep, need to put a little more carbon on top. And eight to 12 inches is always a good start. Covered up really well. Um, If you have rodents, um, so that is another potential issue. So they might smell it and come in. And again, I say, add the carbon on top of that. 
Um, if the carbon's not stopping them, then we need to heat our pile back up. We need to make it uncomfortable for them to live there. We want it hot so they don't want to be around. And so what is the optimum, what is the optimum temperature and how do you make sure you've got it there? Do you, I mean, do you have temperature probes? Yeah. So okay. we, we use thermometers. Um, there's composting thermometers and we, we just buy them online. Um, there's super fancy wireless ones, but I just have one that I literally just take it. Looks like a meat thermometer, but it's really big. Um, and just stick it in and see what the temp is. So we want it to be between 130 and 160 degrees Fahrenheit. And oh, so okay. I'm going to have to Google what that is in Celsius. <laughs> I should have, I should have done it before I was going to, too. Um, so that's, that's kind of our optimum. We don't really want to go over 160, uh, because at that point it gets too hot for the good stuff, which yeah. then if it's too hot, we go back to smells. Potentially we're getting some smell coming off of there because we have too much nitrogen and we need to add more carbon to that row. So that's 54 to 74 degrees Celsius. So, so you would, if, if it gets too hot, that's going to be a problem as well, Mary. Yes. Um, if it gets too hot, like that, and that's another place where our smells can come from. Um, and then we're potentially just killing it. So it'll heat up to the point where it can't heat anymore. If we just let it keep going past the, the 160 or the 74. Yeah. Um, and then it just dies. Right. Okay. And then we have to open it up. We have to um, add more oxygen. We need to add more water. We need to add more carbon, see what's going on. So it's really just easier if you... Um, if you just keep it between the 54 and 74. Right. So, okay. and I say that, and then producers get scared because they're like, I do not have time the way it is, Mary. I yeah. am not going to be going back probing this dead animal that I already had a bury. And it's already really mentally and emotionally hard to have to dispose of your livestock in the first place, much less you have to now go back and take the temps of them. Yeah. Um, and so I tell them, you know, if you just take the base recipe that we give and almost every university in the United States, as far as if they've dealt anything with composting mortalities, they're going to give you a very similar base recipe. Right. And so if you take that and do that, you're going to be fine. The, the times are the instances when you're like, well, um, my, my piles might get too hot is if you add extreme amounts of bulking material. So we're adding like a lot of um, wet manure or a lot of spoiled silage because we just want to get rid of it. Well, that's going to create a big environment for microbes. They're going to get really busy and they're going to create a really hot environment. Mm -hmm. Also might smell. And so you'll know something's wrong. Yeah. Um, another time when we might have uh, something that where it gets um, too warm or, or we're concerned about, you know, do I have to go back and temp it? I would rather just let it be is mm -hmm. if you, um, if you think, well, I'm going to put a couple animals in here. I don't want to put just one. I want to do them really fast and do them all. So you can, as long as you do that properly. And if you do that properly, then you can just let it be. And you don't have to probe it. Right. And so how do we do that properly? How do we stack or, or do that properly? So um, if you have, we say you can only do what your equipment is, right? So if your equipment only can handle one cow at a time, as far as one cow tall, then that's all you can do is one cow tall. Um, we tell our producers, if you can lift it physically by yourself, you can just pick it up off the ground, then you can stack it. If you can't lift it, like I'm not lifting a cow, but I can lift a sheep. Yeah. Right. And so, um, our cows, we do singly. 
Now, if I have three cows die, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a full carbon base. I'm going to lay those cows next to each other, not on top of each other, not touching each other, just next to each other, about a foot apart from each, each other, but they can all be on the same carbon base. And then we do the same thing with the bulky material. We put that on top of them and we cover them with carbon. So it's one row and they're all in there, but they're all individual. If I have smaller animals like sheep or pigs, or if baby calves die, um, if I can lift them, I can stack them. And so I do my, my base on the bottom, like I just explained with the cows, but then I'm going to lift the next calf on top of the bulky material. Okay. So I have my base of carbon. I have my carcasses. And then I have six inches of bulky material. And now I'm going to put a calf on top of that or a sheep on top of that. And then I'm going to cover it with carbon. So now I have two stacked high. We're conserving our land space. We're making sure that pile is hot. We want that pile to be at least four feet high all the time. And so stacking our smaller animals ensures that it's four feet high. Um, and that ensures then that we can um, have enough heat to actually make the process happen. Right. Okay. And are there any disease considerations that we need to be thinking of? So for example, if if the if the death has occurred, um, do we do we need to be worried about what might happen as that animal's breaking down in terms of passing that disease into the air or um, into that leachate? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I say that right now because the US is dealing with highly pathogenic avian influenza. Okay. And so one way to get rid of that virus is by composting the, the dead carcasses. That's highly contagious. Um, and so there we're composting. It's ex extremely important that we reach our temps between the 131 and 160, because that is then killing all of that virus. Now there are diseases like anthrax um, that has to be dealt with in a certain way. We don't compost anthrax. That has to be simply burned on site where it is. And so there are a couple instances where we actually can't compost. Right. Okay. That makes that makes sense. Sometimes you look at things and you go, where do I start? And um, you've yeah. talked a bit about site selection, but what, what would be your kind of like your steps one, two, and three? So this is what I tell my producers who want to compost, but they're a little nervous. First, I'm giving you the base recipe. You just try it. If it messes up, we'll just try again. You you really can't mess this up, guys. Yeah. Um, the, the second thing is, is I only tell my producers, um, to compost using what's on their farm. I don't, if this is your first time, I do not want you to go buy a special load of a special carbon source. I don't want you to outsource a bunch of stuff that's going to cost you money. I literally just want you to use what's on your farm. If you're like, well, Mary, you said we have to use straw as the base and we don't have straw here. Okay. Use bulky wood chips. If that's what you have. Um, use some old hay, use something that has a carbon source in it. So, um, so for our farmers, we're, we're heading into, into calving shortly. So they could use okay. the bedding from, from the calf sheds. So absolutely. Um, use what's on site. And then the other thing that I tell producers when they're starting is if you've never done this before and you are going into some kind of calving season or lambing season, start with the small ones. If you right. have a calf that dies, compost that calf. Because number one, it works so easily with small animals. And number two, it gives you a smaller opportunity to see if you like it. It's very low input. And I can pretty much guarantee you it's going to work. And then you're going to want to try something else. 
Excellent. Look, thanks so much for your time today, Mary. I mean, we've got in, in New Zealand, uh, I know that in a, a lot of our piggeries, there, there is composting that's going on. And we've got a number of our, our farmers are starting to do um, to, to compost their cows. But I, I think it's really cool at that early days. And so it's fantastic to have the advice and experience from someone who has been there, done that, got the T-shirt and um, has a huge amount of expertise in this area. So thank you so much for your time. We do really appreciate it. We're joined by Ruth Sarson for a Canterbury Compliance View. Ruth is at Environment Canterbury. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us. And so Ruth, are you able to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role? Sure. So my name's Ruth Sarson. I work for Environment Canterbury. My job title is a resource management technical lead. And I know that job titles don't tell you an awful lot sometimes. So <laughs> yeah. I, I basically work in the compliance, monitoring and enforcement part of Environment Canterbury. So in, in the role that, that you're in, are you seeing more interest or more queries about animal composting? One of the things to, that's important to realise that under our Land and Water Regional Plan, which is essentially one of the rule books that governs what people can and can't do in regards to the environment, is that we don't have any specific rules relating to animal composting. Uh, and this may, may change as future plans come into place and we see more and more of this practice happening. The rules that we have currently relate to composting in terms of decaying organic matter. Um, so, so animal composting would fall under that. Um, and it's actually quite permissive in a way. The rules allow this to happen under certain, certain conditions. And those are things such as that um, the, the area needs to be less than 20 cubic metres and that any liquid kind of runoff from that composting doesn't enter any surface water bodies. So they, those are the, the main parts of the rules. If those rules can't be met, then that's when a resource consent would need to be applied for from Environment Canterbury. But generally speaking, the rules allow you to go ahead and do this under certain parameters and guidelines. So, so effectively, that it doesn't have to be on, on an impermeable surface, but the leachate does need to be managed. But absolutely, yep. It's the, it's the leachate that, that we're most concerned about. And one of the couple of the other things to consider um, for animal composting is that it only really authorises this to happen onto land rather than into water, obviously. We don't want the leachate going into groundwater. That's not permitted at all. Um, and in terms of um, the, then the spreading of um, the leachate from the animal composting, there are particular rules around that. We would consider it essentially a contaminant um, and we do have particular rules about ensuring control of those contaminants going into surface water and into groundwater. One of the other important things to consider around animal composting is the odour associated with it. And um, odour can have a, a very real impact for people. So it's important to, to manage that. Um, in fact, most of, well, not most of, a large majority of the phone calls that we get to Environment Canterbury relate to odour. Um, people, oh, yeah, people generally can't see what's going into the land or what's going into the water. Um, but odour is something that, um, you know, people are very, very conscious of. Um, so most of our calls are relating to odour. Odour can have quite a um, a mental health impact for people. It's, it's the yeah, kind of thing, a little bit like the squeaky door, you know, once you've smelt it, you kind of always smell it. 
So yeah. it's important to consider that for your neighbours um, and considering potentially where on your farm or where on your property you're going to put um, the animal composting pit. People tend to, um, we often say that people tend to smell with their eyes and I know, I know that doesn't make sense, but yeah. if you can see something, um, you know, that they're more likely to to smell it in a way that if they can't if they can't see it. So yeah. in a way, keeping okay. it keeping it out of the public eye um, will certainly help any concerns that neighbours and so forth might have. And so and so with the 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 leachate, which you've got to manage, and there's there's regulations around that. Mm. What about the composted material? Is there are there any regulations around where that can or can't be spread? Not not so much specifically about where it can and can't be spread. In, in some ways, that's up for um, you as the farmer to manage. As long as you're able to comply with the rules, ensuring that it's not going to have any adverse impact on water bodies and groundwater is, is the main thing that we're concerned about. And so, so as far as the animal composting goes, it sounds like from a regulatory perspective, there's not a, a whole lot that um, that needs to be addressed by the farmer as long as it is um, less than was it twenty um, cubic yeah, meters? 20, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and that's um, our, our regional rules are very much like that. They do tend to be, in some ways, they will allow you to go ahead and do an activity as long as you can manage those adverse impacts. The main things to consider, as I mentioned before, are the odour impacts. But, you know, let's not also forget um, the mana whenua values around this too. If you can't meet the permitted activity rules, then you would need to apply for a resource consent, and that's where you would need to to understand if there's going to be any adverse effect on Naitahu. Um, and, and they will have their own thoughts around animal composting too. You know, there's the, the discussion around is, is burial better, is animal composting better, and, and Naitahu will have their own thoughts and values around that that's important to consider. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. And and I think one of the things for us in our, in our catchment, we have um, areas with, with high levels of groundwater. Yes. And so as, as a result of that, where people have had offal pits in the past, it, it does, it, it is problematic. Um, and so um, looking at options where we can um, look to reduce our reliance on offal pits and reduce the reliance on having someone drive in with a truck and increase the carbon footprint yes. um, is definitely something that um, there could be a lot of benefit for our shareholders, our farmers for. Absolutely, and and the thing to consider with offal pits too is that our rules for offal pits were designed really at a time where there might be the odd casualty animal. You know, a, a small offal pit that that you know traditionally every farm's going to need somewhere to deal with the odd casualty cow. They mm -hmm. they aren't designed for um for mass burial, for example, if there's disease, those kind of things. So the offal pit rules are more restrictive in terms of where you can put them, how how many you can have and so forth, and absolutely understand around those, you know, the, the groundwater table. Um, it can make it difficult to to work out where on your farm, where on your property you're potentially going to put it. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so those considerations need to be taken into account too. We all understand that you're wanting to do the best you can for the environment. So as, as long as you're doing that, we're completely happy. And if you ever have any questions, please feel free to give us a call. We're more than happy to um, to offer assistance and guidance where we can.
So we've spoken to Mary Keener for a science overview and Ruth Sarson to understand the compliance requirements. We also wanted to hear from one of our local farmers. Phil Everest is a generational farmer in the Hikio Hines and the supreme winner of the 2022 Canterbury Balance Farm Environmental Awards. Phil, thanks for joining us on our first MHV podcast. Um, if offal pits uh, are potential point sources and um, can be a real issue, and the cost of den animal pickups have skyrocketed, um, farmers are getting more curious about composting and the benefits to them. And I know that you've been composting on farm for a while. Are you able to share with us how you started and um, why you got into composting? First ran into the concept um, monitor farm days in North Canterbury, <clears throat> where we were wanting to look at how we could dispose of sheep without, as you say, putting them in an offal hole or burning them, um, and saw that that worked particularly well. So um, 10 years ago, when we developed our dairy farm, um, we've obviously got problems down in that Flemington district of high water table and so an offal pit wasn't an, wasn't an option and so we chose to have a crack at composting ourselves um, in just one corner of the farm that wasn't irrigated. Okay so so how did it how did you get started how did how did you um, start to develop that corner into your composting heap? Okay yeah well firstly I mean it was fenced off um, already. It's got to be away from your water sources to meet all your requirements. Um, and for us, <clears throat> we wanted it away from all other buildings because we were worried about um, odours going to others. Um, to be honest, that's not a problem if it's working well. It doesn't have an odour. Um, so, um, but I still wouldn't put it next door to your neighbour's house. Um, a way in which we started was we got a, a, truck, a full truckload of um, sawdust, made that as our base. Um, so just spread that out evenly as, as a base and then got another truckload, put it right beside the heap. Um, and so whenever someone takes an animal to the dead area, it's their responsibility to put a bucket load of, well, to cover the carcass, actually. Um, if it's a calf, it's not a very big bucket. And if it's a cow, it's sometimes two or three buckets to cover the carcass. <clears throat> but it's critical in my from my perspective that the carcass is covered straight away to decompose uh, and if you do that then just about all of the carcass will decompose bar let's say sometimes some of the large hip bones um, but just about everything else all the bones will be gone the calves are no problem at all um, and obviously your plastic tags don't decompose so it's quite good to take them out before you start yeah, good, good, good point. Um, and so have you found that you've had any issues with getting the, the heat right in there or with that, the, the level of composting or is it, has it, has it just worked from the start? It's, we've had no trouble. Um, it's, a, it's an area which is, um, it's sheltered from the west with some trees, which wasn't my choice because I was sort of hoping not to have it as a damp area. Um, but it's actually worked out well because I think it's just enough moisture in there held from the from the rain to, to you know, as you say, it's got to be a little bit of moisture in the sawdust. We use green untreated sawdust. That's the key thing. Um, it's, it's got to be untreated. Um, so got to be mindful of what sawdust you get. Um, but in terms of temperature, the most important thing, I think, Mel, is to make sure that as soon as you put the carcass in, it's covered with sawdust. If you actually wait even a few days and it starts to partially decompose and, and dare I say, it smell as well, um, then it, then the digestion process or the composting process doesn't go so well. I think you need it on straight away uh, to use all those fluids within the carcass. Yeah, and, and have you found that... Um, 
with the with heavy rains or when we've had heavy rains, have you had any issues with leachate? Well, touch wood, so far we haven't. Um, I think that's important that you've got a good bed of sawdust to start with, you know, on right. the bottom. Um, so that does soak it up. I am sure, I wasn't there when we had our um, 500 mils last year. Um, I'm sure there would have been moisture around it at that time. Um, but you can go there on our heavy soils in the winter time, and it's usually still good to look at. On light soils, it will be no problem. Right, okay. And, and and so with the the compost, you've been doing it for a while now. The composting, have you have you spread it out at all, or do you continue to to supplement the existing pile? Yeah, it's a good point, Mel. <clears throat> Generally, we're just supplementing the existing pile. I think we've cleaned it out um, uh, once since we've been there, um, since we've had an operation, and we just put it through a muck spreader when we're actually cleaning out our effluent pond, um, and that worked particularly well. Um, but as I say, generally it just we get another truckload of sawdust every year. Um, hopefully that's all you need with the number of dead animals, um, and and you know that's sufficient to to keep building it up. And so, would you have any advice for for um, one of our shareholders or a farmer who's looking at starting to do composting? What would what would be your advice? I think the key thing is to make sure that your staff understand the concept of what you're trying to do with composting because they are the key players. If they put a carcass there, then they know that they have to cover it up. And so it does force us to think a lot, a lot harder about what other areas we're recycling. And, and it's only just this year that I've learned that all our teat seal and antibiotic tubes can be uh, recycled. Um, and so it's that sort of stuff that I think it sharpens your focus on what can be recycled rather than, oh, it's easy just to chuck it in the hole or throw a match at it. So you've got to be pretty disciplined that it's only animals going there, so you've got control of it. Excellent. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Phil. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. We've got an opportunity here to reduce a potential point source contaminant um, by moving away from offal pits. And we have a massive thank you um, to our guests who have shared their expertise and advice on how to get started. I mean, when I think about the key themes from today for me, I think that location is key, um, as is what carbon source you're going to use and making sure you cover the carcass. Um, I think another thing that stands out for me um, was when Mary said, if you can lift the carcass, you can stack it in the heap. Um, otherwise, you need to make sure that they're spread um, and distanced apart. So thanks again for listening. And if you have any suggestions for future topics, um, please email me. I'm mal at mhvwater.nz or jump on our website, mhvwater.nz to um, get in touch. Cheers.